I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Paramang people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I think for me it's really important that you work with lots of different winemakers along the journey as you're trying to learn how, how, how you're going to take it on because everyone's got different ideas and I found, you know, at each winery I went to, there, there were techniques that I probably didn't love, but there was always a couple that I picked up and that I'm you know, definitely still using in my winemaking today. So it's sort of the building blocks of, of what you become as a winemaker for sure. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Andrew Quinn is chief winemaker of Hentley Farm Wines in the Barossa Valley. Their focus is on exceptional wines and more importantly, memorable experiences. Andrew joins me to chat about the life and making wine in Australia's most renowned wine region. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining me. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you on this fine day today? I'm going well. It's uh, It's been a little bit dreary and wet and cold over here in the Brossa, but um, yeah, we've, we've got some nice weather on the way. So um, yeah, looking forward to seeing the sun out. Uh, as we all are, I totally agree. Now you originally studied horticulture. When did the kind of wine bug get you and, and when did that begin to pique your interest? Yeah, so horticulture was, so, yeah, I, I came out of school thinking I wanted to get into landscaping or something of that nature and went on and got into horticulture and I was studying horticulture um, by distance edu- education for uh, I guess about two and a half years or something like that and I was sort of studying my way through it feeling like I wasn't too sure exactly what I was going to be doing with it when I got towards the end of the degree and at about that time I've got a, an older brother Matt who um, is seven years older than me um, and, and I was probably at about that stage I was about sort of 20, 21 years of age and my older brother Matt was obsessed with wine at the time and so yeah, I kept listening to him and his mates carry on about all these great McLaren Vale producers and Barossa producers and I guess I sort of got the romantic side of the wine industry through through their storytelling and yeah I, I started to think about wine as an option and I found I wanted to. I, was, I grew up in Melbourne, and so I wanted to study um, on campus if possible. And I found a degree at La Trobe University um, in Bundoora in Melbourne that was viticultural science and wine production. And yeah, as I looked further into it, I worked out I could get some credits for the study I'd already done in horticulture, and so it all seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so it's the older brother uh, influence that we have to blame, really. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I was trying to uh, get one up on him. Really, he was obsessed with wine, and I thought. If I become a winemaker, I'll have one up on him. And I think it's worked out quite well, really. Yeah, he could have influenced you in a lot of other things. And I think that <laughs> wine is probably a pretty good outcome. It's probably a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> and when you finished uh, university, you travelled for a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about your travels and and what did you get out of, you know, your, your time in California versus kind of your time in, in Europe? Yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, whenever I'm talking to a young young winemaker coming up these days, I, I always talk about the importance of travelling around as much as you can and working under as many winemakers as you can. Um, and yeah, I, I guess the US was the first one that came up for me and I was actually still finishing my, it was part of the last year of my degree when I went over to the US, we, we had to do, or ideally had to do an overseas vintage and a few, few mates that I went through uni decided we'd go over to California and we managed to get a job at um, a reasonably large winery called St. Francis in, in Sonoma actually, so the, the next valley over from Napa. Um, 
and yeah, it was it was a really great experience. I ended up ended up they sort of had two sections of their winery, um, a bigger the sort of bigger larger production section and the smaller boutique section. And I actually ended up in the larger area, which I wasn't that excited about at the time, but but in hindsight, it was great to see the bigger equipment and the way um, I guess a, a larger operation works. But I think also you know the US they really are all about quality and yeah I, th- I think they have a really strong drive for producing premium wines and so I, I think I learned a lot about that through through my time at St Francis um, and, and it was a really great experience and, and then even you know just getting in a car and going for a drive through a pl- place like the Napa Valley is um, a pretty amazing experience so in terms of um, I guess the romance of the wine industry you learn you learn a lot you know in a place like Napa and I, I've been back there a couple of times since it, it is a, a pretty amazing place to to travel through so yeah that that was a great experience and then from there I um I ended up going over to work for on and off for a, a, a wine negotiation in in the Languedoc um, Jacques and Francois Lerton, which was a really interesting experience. It was um, I, I was working basically for Jacques and Francois, going into major cooperative sales and, and just managing their ferments and their wines for them, which was um, I guess quite challenging because really they're taking they're basically saying to this cooperative well we want to send an, another winemaker in to, to do our winemaking for us and by the way they're, they're not french so it was yeah it was a really interesting sort of experience in terms of getting to know people and trying to fit in with with the french winemakers in in those particularly large cooperative sellers but i, I learned a lot about different winemaking techniques so i think um jacques and francois we're really all about, and it's something that I sort of take through to my winemaking now, about using different techniques to suit different varieties and different, um, I guess, different ripenesses uh, at harvest to try and ensure that, you know, basically just using lots of different techniques to ensure that you've got blending options when it comes time to put those wines together. So, yeah, they were great experiences. And, I, yeah, I certainly, it, it's, like I said, anytime I'm talking to a young winemaker these days, it's, I think for me, it's really important that you work with lots of different winemakers along the journey as you're trying to learn how, how, how you're going to take it on because everyone's got different ideas. And I found, you know, at each winery I went to, there, there were techniques that I probably didn't love, but there was always a couple that I picked up and that I'm you know, definitely still using in my winemaking today. So it's sort of the building blocks of, of what you become as a winemaker for sure. Yeah, it sounds as if, it, you know, you kind of pick two perfect places one to kind of see something on the grand scale and then something to you know look at in the Languedoc where you're looking at you know more boutique and and uh, perhaps more regimented in terms of what the AOC you know requires of them but at the end of the day if you want to be successful as a winemaker you really need to have both under your belt don't you you need to look at larger operations and you need to know how to you know just work with a couple of barrels of wine as well. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And I, I guess in some ways I saw a bit of both at, at St. Francis. But, um, you know, I think I was very fortunate with Jacques and Francois because I guess in a lot of ways that region is known for sort of larger, bigger production stuff. But what they were all about, and I'm sure they still are today, is going into those areas and finding the best little pieces of, of vineyard that they could source and, and then managing those components of fruit with attention to detail in, in those larger wineries. So, you know, and, and to me, it proves that that region itself can actually produce some really amazing wine when you go to that next level with detail. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that couple of, I did two vintages there um, and, and learnt more and more uh, the more time I spent there. So I was, I was very fortunate with that experience, definitely. Walk me through the kind of culture of the two different 
two different uh, countries in maybe at, say end of vintage or a day to day. Did you find that perhaps the celebrations at the end of vintage were kind of similar when you're at to- two totally different places? Is the approach different? One more serious, one more kind of relaxed. How would you sum up the culture of the two different countries? <laughs> That's a tough question. And they're, 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 they're obviously very different um, for sure. Um, and and I, I guess I found that the, the, um, the winemaking within the, the Americans was um, – they were quite full on. They were quite intense. Um, they certainly took it very seriously. Um, and, and there was, yeah, a degree of intensity, which you would think – I think when you come into it and you think, oh, the French, yeah, they're probably going to be pretty intense as well. But to be honest, and, I, and we're talking southern France, I found in France that they were quite relaxed. They were probably a little bit more laid back and – and maybe didn't get quite as carried away as, as the Americans did. And, of course, you know, at the end of the day, every winery is different. So there's, there's, I guess, the culture within the region and then the culture within a winery. Um, but, yeah, I found it. I found that they, they were quite laid back. One of the funny things I found in, in France was because we were being sent into these big cooperative cellars and we were doing the hands-on component for our, for our little ferments as well, but we found it quite challenging to actually get hold of any pumps or any equipment. So we always made sure that we were ready to work pretty hard when it came time for the afternoon siesta so about i think it was about two o'clock in the afternoon they'd all disappear for about two or three hours and, and that was when we get the majority of our work done which which was which was quite interesting but worked out well for us so so yeah in terms of celebration at the end of vintage i think there is a degree of similarity around around the world i think you know you wherever you are in vintage you're just working so hard for for those for that period of time you almost think about nothing else but making wine for three months straight and so the celebration is almost um about relief and and it being over as much as much as anything and i do think it is it is quite similar for sure it's always time for a party wherever you are well, that's good to hear that there's something in common. So if I'm ever going to head overseas, I really need to go at the end of vintage and catch them at that, that celebration time. <laughs> that's the time for the party. Yeah, that's definitely when you want to be there for sure. <laughs> I suppose I'll have to do some work too. When you, um, you return back to Australia, where, do you, where did you go from there? Yeah, so my uh, now wife, we were engaged at the time, came back. Um, she'd actually lived in the, in the UK, in, in London, and I'd sort of come and gone a little bit. Um, we came back and got married um, in two, 2007. Um, and while we got married up in Port Douglas, and while we were there, I, I got a phone call from um, one of the winemakers at Yolumba. I can't remember exactly how that came about but um, and why they were calling me, <laughs> to be honest. But, um, yeah, I got a call, call from them uh, to say that they were looking for someone to do the um, night shift winemaking role at their, um, at their Anguston site um, for the 2008 vintage. So it seemed like a great opportunity because, I mean, Ilumba is such a great business on, on so many levels. Um, and so, yeah, my wife and I actually moved to the Barossa Valley for my um, short-term um, vintage winemaking role, and here we are, still here, fifteen years later. So, yeah, it was it was, and and uh, Yolumba, uh, the experience there was, um, I guess, in some ways similar to to the sorts of things I was learning um, with Jacques and Francois. Um, you know, Yolumba known for 
in some ways for larger production stuff, but in reality they source some amazing old vineyards out of the valley and and working as the night shift winemaker in the red section at their at their Angerston site, I was more focused on the premium end of things um, and, and so I, I learned a lot about managing ferments and sort of being regimented in, in the approach to managing ferments through the vintage period and tasting ferments every morning and, and learning for the things you need to look for and what, what can go wrong along the way, I guess. So, yeah, I, I sometimes look back at those those three, you know, the, the US experience, the French experience, then leading in to, to that vintage at um, Yolumba. And, yeah, I think I was very fortunate to come across those three. They, they're all similar but different in, the, in their own ways and, and certainly those experiences are what have sort of moulded me as a winemaker, I think. Mm. Yolumba, you know, interesting that you say because for me, Yolumba is always super relevant and quintessentially Australian. And I, and I, I think it doesn't matter kind of where you are, whether you, you drink, you know, just really small craft, you know, natural wine or you, you kind of love the bigger brands. Yolumba somehow fits into to all relevance when it comes to wine because of those old vineyards, but because of their incredibly long history. So, um, I, yeah, I think what an opportunity. And, and if they call and, and ask you to come on board, you probably don't question who recommended me or how did this happen. You just say, you just say yes, don't you? <laughs> It was just the perfect. It was the perfect thing for me at that point in time in my career. I was I was pretty young. I'd, I'd, I'd done a couple of vintages in Australia and and those I think three overseas. And I was just looking. I wasn't sure where I was going to go at the time. I and, and still do. I, I loved the, the wines of the Barossa Valley. So even though I, to be honest, I'd never even been to the Barossa at that point in time, but I obviously had tasted lots of wines out of the Barossa. And as I said earlier, my brother would carry on about McLaren Vale and Barossa brands, like he was going crazy. Um, and yeah, so I, I had a, a, an already a really strong interest in the in the valley. Wasn't really sure where I was going, but I'd spent a couple of years overseas, and, and my wife and I were pretty keen to sort of, in effect, kind of continue that that travel bug to, to some degree. Um, and so, yeah, it just made a lot of sense. And I wasn't really sure what I was getting in, in, into at the time, but um, it, it certainly worked out really well for me in terms, like I said, in terms of really helping to mould me as a winemaker. I think so as, as we move forward, I, I end up on the back of vintage bumping into Keith Henschke, who's the, the owner and founder of Hentley Farm and, and ended up taking that job in August of, of 2008. And, and I think... Um, I would have. I don't think I would have been as successful in those first couple of years at Hentley Farm had I not had that experience um, with the winemaking team at Yolumba the year prior. Fantastic. Well, Hentley Farm um, has such a strong portfolio. It's actually the first uh, couple of wines that I tasted on moving back to Australia after my time overseas. And I was in a tiny, tiny wine bar um, in Newtown. I was living in a, a studio apartment and I went up to this wine bar and um, did a tasting there and they had the Beauty and the Beast on show. And I remember thinking, I knew I wanted to be in wine. I wanted to be in Australia. And I tasted those two wines side by side. And I was like, this is why I want to do wine this is awesome and and you know they've gone from strength to strength in in so many years so how do you find that Hentley stands out from a crowd of wineries in the Barossa because there are so many strong names in the valley yeah there are and that's why the valley's great and we're certainly proud to just be to be one of them and to be part of that community I suppose um in terms of I guess the Hentley farm story with that premium in, so you talked about the beauty and the beast, but those that don't know our, our 
our portfolio of wines, we have an estate range that um, all have a white label leading up to our premium um, end that have some, some weird and wonderful labels that really make them stand out. But all of those premium end wines are produced off our single estate. There's some other wineries within the valley that probably are similar, probably one or two that, that really do have that same focus. But for the most part, the history of the Barossa Valley um, has been more about wineries sourcing fruit from growers throughout the region, um, less so about our, things like our story where, where it's about, well, we've picked this little patch of dirt, we've got this 40 hectares of land and we're going to produce a whole portfolio of wines just off this site and try and produce wines that really tell the story, not just of that whole site but of how it how it varies within within the vineyard and, you know, soil changes and aspect and, and those things. So that's sort of, I guess that's where we're a little bit different to the great majority, um, having that focus on, on single estate. Um, but yeah, you're you're right. It's it's hard to stand out in in amongst such a great group of wineries, and I guess we've been lucky enough to have a bit of success along the way, which helps put our name up in headlights and and helps us stand out a bit. But I guess our focus is really on producing as great a wine as we can off off that single vineyard and and really trying to tell the story of that place. Yeah, interesting that you talked about the kind of grower mentality and also, um, you know, where that history has come from, because I think the region itself is strong because of that, because there was so much interaction between the growers and the makers. Um, In terms of the different levels you were talking about, tell me a little bit about the Clo Otto Vineyard, because that is... um, a bottle, I think, that if anyone has seen it or tried it, it will stay in their memory forever. And it is at the top of the tier. But tell me a little bit about that vineyard. Yeah, or well, probably to tell you that uh, the full story of the Claudio Vineyard, probably take um, sort of a step back and the, the story of Hentley Farm from where it begins. So we're, we're, we were set up by a guy by the name of Keith Hinchke, um, and, and he's still today um, founder, owner, um, and, and general manager of the company. And so back in the mid-90s, he decided he really wanted to, do his own thing and he put a huge amount of time and effort into trying to understand the different sub-regions of the Barossa Valley Um, and so he got a a few soil maps um, and and talked to a lot of winemakers, a lot of viticulturalists and and they all sort of pointed him to the northwestern section of the Barossa Valley, particularly looking for red clay loam soils that um, are are on the banks of Granite Creek and so yeah, Keith drove around pretty regularly through that sort of 96, 97 period with his soil maps in his passenger seat looking for a property that he could purchase. And so he found the, the, the place that Hentley Farm is now set up on in 97, um, bought, purchased that property and set about planting it out sort of between 97 to, to 99. But when he um, purchased that property, there was already a neighbour next door, a little guy by the name of Otto Kasper, uh, a little old German guy who had planted his vineyard out a few years earlier, so sort of 95. 94, 95. And so um, Keith was neighbours with Otto for about four or five years. And then in 2004, I think it was, um, Otto decided to head back to Germany. And Keith had heard from from other winemakers that, that, that had been taking that fruit, what a great vineyard it was, not to mention, really, you just need to walk through the vineyard to, to see how great it is. And so, yeah, Keith purchased that vineyard off, off Otto in 2004. And the first Clawato Shiraz was produced in 2005 moving forward. And so I sort of think of the Otto Vineyard as a single vineyard within a single vineyard. Um, Obviously, it it does border um, Keith's plantings. And in fact, 
if you have the opportunity to come and visit our Salador, you drive down a, a steep road um, towards the creek and, and on your left side as you come down the hill is the Otto Vineyard and on your um, right-hand side is, is the main beast block. So right next door to each other. And in terms of the wine, I mean, it is, I guess we say this about all the wines that we're producing, but w- we really try to be as minimalistic as we can be in the winery to try and really tell the story of that vineyard. And it's a, it's a red clay loam with a, what is predominantly a hard clay underneath that sort of acts as this slow release of, of nutrient and water. Um, and, and that tends to present itself in the wine as it's it's got this beautiful, soft, silky tannin. We try to extract reasonably heavily through fermentation, but at the end of the day, the fruit tends to tell the story and, and it is all about that softness and that subtlety in, in the palate. It's full, it's long, it's got great length, but there's this real degree, this sort of inherent softness that is part of that vineyard. And aromatic intensity is probably another thing you know, it's um, it's just beautifully lifted and aromatic. We see violets, we see dark fruit, you know, lots of florals and, and all sorts of characteristic spices um, coming through. So it is, yeah, like you said, it's the it's at the top end of of our price point. Um, we probably have to work less in the winery than we do though on on a lot of the other wines because it is just such an amazing parcel of fruit. That's always nice, isn't it? Just not having to do too much and uh, sitting back and letting the, the fruit do its thing. And, and you know, I agree, the, the Clo Otto wines that I've tried, I've always kind of noted down that there's a kind of slippery, velvety character or the texture is kind of what surprised me most about that wine. I mean, and like you said, it was big and bold, but then it really kind of quite elegant and finessed as well. Yeah, I guess I guess the thing with um, in terms of wine style, you know, I, I've been at Huntley Farm for what is it now, fourteen years, I think. Um, and, and I guess the wine style for Clo has changed a little bit. So I, I guess I talk about not doing much in the winery, and that's absolutely true. But one one thing that I think is important in terms of wine style is is basically the the ripeness level at harvest. And what we've been trying to do for quite a long period of time now is harvest at a, at a point where Obviously, the fruit's ripe. That's a good start. But we want to produce wines that speak of the place. So they're still going to have that density and richness that you just mentioned. But we also, I'm a big believer that it's important that we don't go to the point of being overripe. Raisin fruit, bagging fruit in the winery is, in my opinion, our enemy. And so we're trying to pick early enough that we've still got freshness and vibrancy. The wines are still telling the true story of the, of the vintage and, and the vineyard. But not ending up over in that overripe spectrum where we've got dead fruit and, and raisin fruit and those sort of overripe characters that I think were, you know, if you go back 15, 20 years, the Bross was probably known for those dead fruit characteristics for a period of time. But but for me, they're not the great, greatest wines we can produce. So it is about not doing much, but it's also about trying to pick early enough that we create the characteristics that, that we're looking for in the wine. Absolutely. And never has that been more important than with a kind of warming climate and, you know, hotter days. Um, I think it's interesting because for a long time, I think the story of the Barossa has been on these more lithe, like you said, early picked, vibrant fruit spectrums, great acidity, great reds. And, uh, you know, a little a little bit like a, a, the Australian Chardonnay story is it tends to catch on very very slowly and people still talk about these overripe wines of the Barossa which we rarely see anymore um what do you where do you see the future for the Barossa and and I know there's a lot of adaptive practices that are going into the to the region so where do you see viticulture in the next kind of 20 years or so 
it's certainly going to be a challenging time. I mean, we all know what's happening with the climate. Of course, this year doesn't really tell that story. It's, it's almost a bit funny to be saying the biggest challenge is going to be moisture and, and soil water retention, um, where at the moment we have the opposite problem. <laughs> but, you know, you get those one in 10 years in the Barossa Valley, and this is probably, not probably, definitely the wettest we've had since 2011. But all of the years in between there are all about trying to um, retain moisture. And so that that's certainly the biggest challenge, I think, that we have moving forward. Um, you know, Grenache is a variety that we talk about a lot um, for a whole lot of reasons, but one of the reasons why Grenache is such an important part of the, the future in, in the Barossa Valley is that it is a variety that is quite well adopted to this climate and will continue to be as it gets warmer. Shiraz is obviously an amazing great variety and it will always be the hero of the region. But if you look at those two grape varieties, Grenache, you know, if you come through the Barossa Valley on a 40-degree day, you drive past the Grenache vineyard, the leaves are still standing up and looking bright and you would think it was 20 degrees outside. Well, you drive past the Shiraz vineyard and the leaves look like they're wilting and they're, they're really battling through those conditions. So I think that there's no doubt that um, growing varieties that can deal with less moisture in the ground and and with more and more high temperatures is, is going to be really important. But then it's also about techniques that we can use in the in the vineyard to retain that moisture. So, you know, we're seeing more and more use of, of undervine compost and mulches. We're seeing more and more um, use of, of straw as, as a way to hopefully retain moisture and, and retain vine vigour and vine health through the growing season. You know, undervine mowing is another thing. So people trying to use less herbicides um, is really important for, for a myriad of reasons. But undervine mowing is a technique that will probably start to see replacing herbicide use. But that will be a challenge because moisture retention is, is what it's all about. So, yeah, it's, it's evolving quickly. I think as a region, you know, I think the Barossa probably for the, you know, there was probably 20 or 30 years where viticulture in the Barossa didn't change a hell of a lot. There was a lot of cultivating of soil, the Barossa till, what they call it around here. Um, but what we're seeing right now is this really significant and very fast-changing approach to viticulture that is about sustainability for sure um, and about trying to ensure that we've got healthy vineyards in the region, you know, in 100 years to come. Which, which we're obviously lucky enough to work with those old vineyards of, of the past. So, yeah, it's evolving a lot and, and I think it, varieties will play a part, but probably more so it's about the, the techniques we're going to use in the vineyard to try and retain that moisture. It's so great to hear that everybody is thinking that really long-term plan, especially when you, you know, as a winemaker, you get to play with incredibly old vines and realise just how, um, in, you know, wonderful they can be. Like you said, with not a lot to them and uh, not a lot of work needed from you. So um, it's great to hear that, you know, it's in really good hands and people are thinking about the long-term. But the best segue ever, talking about Grenache, is uh, to say congratulations uh, on the recent win of the 2022 Jimmy Watson Memorial Trophy. It is if not the biggest uh, red trophy in Australia. And this is the second time Grenache has won for your old legend 2021 Grenache. How did it feel to claim that win? It was pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, it's it's um, it's certainly the, the trophy you dream of winning, is, is what I've said to a few people. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's when I got into the industry or I, I guess when I – I can't actually remember when I actually started to learn about the Jimmy Watson, but I assume it was probably when I was studying back in Melbourne. Um, and it's just since then always been in my psyche as the, the trophy that you, 
hope that one day you might actually be lucky enough to win. But I think um, living in a place like the Barossa Valley, you know, the last 20 years of the Melbourne Wine Show has had a tendency to head in a slightly sort of cooler climate direction. Um, and so I guess it, I'd probably written it off, you know. I go back 10 years ago, I sort of thought, God, there's, there's no way on earth we're ever going to win the Jimmy Watson because we just don't make the wine styles that they're looking for. But when Turkey Flat won the, with a Grenache in, in 17, sort of thought, oh, maybe, you never know. But if, if I'm honest, I probably thought, yeah, they're not going to let that happen again. We'll never see Grenache win another one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, even on the night, I was um, – I, I, I was there with our other winemaker, Siobhan Wigan, and I think I talked myself in and out of us being a chance of winning it about five or six times. Um, and so when we finally actually got it, it was quite a shock, really. Um, and, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. I, th- I think uh, we then spent the next two weeks taking the, the Jimmy Trophy everywhere we could with us, um, and it still didn't really di- didn't really sink in. I'm not sure that it still has, to be honest. And it's been great being back home. You know, every, every time I see someone I haven't seen since, they're, um, they're up and congratulating me, which, which is really nice. So, yeah, it's, it's been amazing oh, i think that's pretty cool and how did you celebrate with the team uh we had we had a bit of a party in the in the uh, courtyard at Salador uh the week after um yeah managed to get them it's always hard we've got a pretty big team at Hentley farm these days so it's hard to get everyone together um but yeah we, we managed to get a, a good crew of people together to have a good celebration and and um christmas party coming out pretty soon so we'll, we'll no doubt take jimmy along to the christmas party and continue celebrating there for sure well, I hope he survives and we he comes out the other side as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, he survived the night in Melbourne uh, afterwards. So, if he can survive that, I feel like he can survive. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Andrew, what do, you, what do you say is the most rewarding part of your job? I know you've got lots of perks, but when you sit back at the end of the day and it's been, you know, a long, hard slog, like perhaps, you know, a, a wetter year like this year, wh- what makes it all worth it? Um, I think definitely seeing people enjoy the wines. Um, we, we've um, family and friends, but also we've got a great um, loyal membership base that that really has been. So many of them have been with us for the you know ten years or more. So I think um, yeah, getting the opportunity to to taste with those sorts of people that have supported us over the years and and really see them enjoy the wines is is probably the the number one thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, and certainly you know we work pretty hard throughout the year and, and over the years in the vineyard and in the winery and, and yeah, really put our heart into the wines that we're producing. And so certainly, you know, when you, when you can win something like the Jimmy Watson, then that's that's nice reward for, uh, for all of that hard work. So it helps. <laughs> and you have an incredible restaurant down there, the Atrium. So does that play a part? I mean, you do get to have people on site you know, eating beautiful food and then also drinking the wines. And I know that, you know, like you talked about earlier, experiences play a big part. So when people come down and dine there, they often take away more than just, uh, you know, an understanding of the wines you produce. They they take a, an experience away with them. Yeah, the, the restaurant's amazing. Claire um, Fells owns the chef there and, and she does an incredible job. And I think as much as anything, it's about the, the location. And if you sit in the atrium, atrium, you're looking out the windows directly across Granite Creek to the beauty block, so the, the main component that goes into the beauty blend uh, each year. And you can see another couple of – you can see H block, which is our premium Shiraz Cabernet. So you, you're really immersed in the, in the site when you come and dine in the restaurant. And so, yeah, you get an incredible experience that's delivered by, by the staff in the restaurant. Um, and, and hopefully you enjoy the wines along the way. But it's a beautiful place and, and we're trying to 
create wines that sort of tell the story and give a sense of place. But you're really getting that just by coming and dining in the restaurants. So, yeah, we've been very fortunate to have that that restaurant in place. I think it was built back in 2012 and, and gradually renovated and improved over the journey. And it's certainly an important part of our brand story, no doubt. It's definitely one of the, the recommendations when people get down there and they are in the valley and they say, where should we eat and drink? It's always a recommendation of mine. And people come away saying, you know, that was one of the best lunches or dinners we had. And and then they fall in love with the wines as well, which is, you know, it's a total win-win. So you're doing an incredible job down there. The whole team, I have to say. Uh, Andrew, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? <laughs> I'm not sure that I'd survive, for starters, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think, uh, so I, I don't drink these often, but if I, if I, I think I'd have to put it on the list, and that is, I, I love a Negroni, mm. um, and I think, you know, if there's anyone in the, most people in the industry listening to this will be nodding their heads in agreement. I, I just love the, the bitterness and the, the flavours, and yeah, Negronis are amazing. I, I only drink them every now and then, so, but I think, I, I think they'd have to be on the list. Um, I mean, there's the obvious red wine is, is certainly got to be there, I would have thought. It's going to be pretty tough to continue on with my job if I'm not allowed to have a glass of red wine. Um, and then the other one, I think, and, and again, it's a bit of an industry thing, I suspect, but it's hard to go past a good gin and tonic uh, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon. So I think they'd be my three. Does that sound Okay. I'll let you get away with red wine. It's it's a ge- very general, but considering how many delicious wines you red wines you make, I'll let you get away with it. <laughs> oh, listen, if, if I have to pick one red wine, and this might get me in trouble with the boss because I should be saying Shiraz, but you know we just run a Jimmy Watson with a Grenache, and if I had to narrow it down to one, it would definitely be. Uh, I'd keep Grenache on the list for sure. Oh, Grenache is a an everyday drink in our household, so I cannot fault you on that. That's for sure. <laughs> You know, it's funny that you talk about the Negroni is so many people love a Negroni, but people have an issue with bitterness. And I think it's funny because there's something about the magic of three ingredients in a Negroni that people don't realize that they actually enjoy the bitterness that's there. I mean, you you know, not many people enjoy having a, an Amaro or an Fenet very often, but uh, there's a bitter character that something happens when those three are mixed together and... Um, and it just seems to work. So I'm in, interested in the science behind all of that, but uh, three very, very good drinks. And I think you'd be pretty happy if you're on your desert island with those three. Definitely, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a treat catching up, Andrew. And uh, I've been meaning to have you on the podcast. I love what you do. I love the wines. And I think they resonate with so many people. So keep it up. And congratulations again. Taking one out for Grenache, you know, makes me so incredibly happy. And uh, I hope that we get to catch up maybe at the atrium next time. That sounds awesome. Yeah, if you do get the chance to come into the valley, make sure you look me up. And um, yeah, go Grenache. It's it's certainly a great thing for the region and and for the variety. So thank you. We're, We're pretty stoked. Congratulations and cheers to you. Thanks. Bye. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.